Lecture 7, Alfred the Great. Welcome back. Last time we saw the Vikings arrive in England and we watched them pick off the English kingdoms one by one. In eastern England they settled in large numbers and slowly transformed the landscape and even the language of England. But there was one kingdom that did not fall to the Vikings, one kingdom that held out against them one last remnant of Anglo-Saxon rule. And that was Wessex in the southwest. And Wessex was going to be the key to English revival. And it was going to be the kingdom that ultimately united the English and made them one people. But that was a very long process. Today we're just going to look at the career of one man, the king who laid the groundwork for all that was to follow. And that man is King Alfred. He is known to us as Alfred the Great. He ruled from 871 to 899. In this lecture, we're going to try to see why people call him Alfred the Great. I do think he deserves the name, and I'm going to try to justify it to you today. But before we get to Alfred, we need to back up a bit and talk for a minute about the Kingdom of Wessex. We saw last time that in the early 9th century, Wessex became the most powerful kingdom in England. They took over from Mercia, essentially, after the death of King Offa. And when King Egbert beat the Mercians in 825, that was the sign that the torch really had passed to Wessex. And Egbert's successors continued that legacy and extended their dominance along the whole southern coast of England. Basically, Wessex has hegemony over the kingdoms of Sussex, Essex, and Kent by the middle of the 9th century, so they've expanded their authority considerably. And they have kind of a standoff with Mercia. They're not exactly friends but they're not really enemies either. On the other hand, Wessex is suffering from Viking raids like everybody else in England, and things have gotten worse in the 840s, as we said last time. This is when Vikings begin to raid in much larger groups. So this is the situation for Wessex in the middle of the 9th century, under the reign of King Athelwolf, the son of Egbert. Athelwolf is an interesting guy. He made a grand pilgrimage to Rome in 855. This wasn't unprecedented. Plenty of other Anglo-Saxon kings had done it. Some had even gone to Rome basically with the intention of retiring there. They died in Rome. But King Athelwolf has a special reason to undertake a pilgrimage. He wants to ask God for help in dealing with the Viking menace. His churchmen had actually recommended this step earlier in 839. But for whatever reason, Athelwolf had not gone on pilgrimage then, and the raids had intensified. So, the trip to Rome is long overdue. But the really odd thing that Athelwolf does is to send his youngest son, Alfred, as part of the advance party that goes out to prepare for the journey two years ahead of time in 853. Alfred is about four or five years old at the time. He's not a physically robust child. He suffered always from kind, all kinds of complaints. Later in life, he was going to be plagued by digestive problems that kept him imprisoned in the latrine for long periods of time. The journey to Rome is also a very arduous one. The trip is about 1,600 kilometers, and it could easily take up to two months. 
and there's also no easy way to get over the Alps. All the mountain passes in this period are full of robbers. So, the king must have had a very good reason for wanting Alfred to go to Rome. No one knows for sure why the king sent his youngest son on this very dangerous journey. Possibly he thought Alfred was the most expendable of his sons. He had three older sons. But Alfred's most recent biographer, I think, has the best explanation. Sending a king's son in the advance party, even a five-year-old king's son, this is a sign of respect for the pope. And in fact, when Alfred reached Rome, he was confirmed by the pope personally. And this gave them a very special bond with each other. And Athelwolf doubtless planned for this to happen, and he was surely counting on using Alfred as a means of strengthening ties between the papacy and Wessex. This confirmation ceremony that Alfred underwent seems to have been blown up in retrospect into something more elaborate than it really was. Later sources call it a consecration, as if the pope were designating Alfred as a future king. Now, this is something that would have seemed really improbable at the time. Alfred is the youngest of four brothers. But later on, it's going to make it look as if Alfred's success is foreordained. And that's always useful for propaganda purposes. Now, maybe Alfred had made a big success of his first trip to Rome. Maybe he asked to go back. But for whatever reason, when King Athelwolf finally set out on his pilgrimage in 855, he took Alfred with him. And they spent a whole year in the city. And this period made an enormous impression on Alfred. They visited all the ancient monuments and the buildings in the city, but they're mainly there to see all of the important churches, especially the ones that are associated with the early Christian martyrs. Alfred obviously thought about this time in Rome for the rest of his life, and a lot of the emphasis that he placed on learning later in his reign, doubtless that comes from his experiences in Rome. But all is not well in Wessex, while Alfred and his father the king are off enjoying the sights in Rome. King Athelwolf had left his oldest son, Athelbald, in charge of Wessex while he was away. But when the royal pilgrimage party got home, Athelbald refused to step aside for his father. This was always a big problem in a royal family. We're going to see this repeatedly in the rest of the course. What do you do with grown-up princes? They've been raised to rule, and you don't have anything for them to do. You can't really have two kings at once. And if you try to do that, it can be a disaster. So now Athelbald has had a taste of power and he doesn't want to let go of it. So he rebels against his father. And in effect, Athelwolf has to submit to a kind of face-saving compromise. Athelbald is left in charge of the western part of Wessex, that's the original core of the Kingdom of Wessex, and King Athelwolf has to be satisfied with the eastern area. Those are the old kingdoms of Sussex and Kent that Wessex is controlling now. So Athelwolf has essentially been demoted to subordinate king. Athelwolf hangs on for two more years, and then he dies in 858. So why does this rather sorry episode of family squabbling matter in the story of Alfred? I think it matters because I think Alfred is paying very close attention, young as he was, 
to everything that's going on politically in the kingdom of Wessex. He saw what happened between his father and his older brother, and he made very sure later in his life that the same thing was not going to happen again. He ended up himself with adult sons who were itching to rule, but he kept them on a very tight leash. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if Alfred had wanted to go back to Rome later on on a pilgrimage of his own when he was king, but he didn't go. He never left Wessex unguarded. But we've gotten ahead of the narrative. Let's get back to the young Alfred. His father dies in 858. At this point, it still probably seemed very unlikely that Alfred would end up as king. Alfred grew to manhood. He became a soldier. That's what uh, a royal son is supposed to do. And he played a key role helping to defend Wessex against Viking raids, which are getting worse again throughout the 860s. This is the period when the great army is uh, on the loose. But over the next 13 years, one by one, all three of his older brothers died. And that meant that in 871, Alfred is the last of Athelwolf's four sons left alive. But the last of the brothers to die, Athelred, had left two young sons. What would Alfred do? He did what any king, who was later going to be called the Great, would have done. He shunted his nephews aside, and he took the throne. Now, there's a pretty good justification for this. Alfred had spent most of the past few years in the field facing the Vikings. By this point, he is definitely the most experienced military leader that Wessex has. He's clearly the best candidate for the throne. And in this period, we don't yet have hard and fast rules about royal succession. Really, any member of the royal family might be chosen. Wessex obviously needs Alfred. And he even has, in a sense, the approval of his dead brother. There had been an agreement among the sons of Athelwolf that the brothers would be each other's heirs. But it was still controversial that Alfred was setting his nephews aside. He did have to smooth that over with his followers. And Alfred himself may have had qualms about becoming king. He was a complicated man. Probably he was not ideally suited to being a king, by temperament at least. He was a very religious man. He struggled a lot with the baser parts of human nature. His uh, contemporary biographer, Asser, he says that he had a very big problem with lust as a young man. And later, Alfred thanked God for sending him those digestive complaints, the ones that kept him in the latrine all the time because that made it physically difficult to indulge in the sins of the flesh. So that actually helped Alfred out in his efforts to stay pure. Now, this is definitely not the attitude that most kings took in the Middle Ages. We'll see that most of them have no problem with sins of the flesh. They're eager to uh, engage in them. But despite all this, Alfred takes the throne. And it's probably a very good thing for Wessex that he does, because Alfred immediately faces a military crisis. You'll remember the great army that we talked about in the last lecture, the huge Viking force that had been conquering the kingdoms of England one by one. Well, now they have their sights set on Wessex. Wessex contains some very rich farmland. It's a very attractive target. And it's clear to everyone in England that Wessex is where the army is going to head next. So Alfred sets out to meet the Vikings in the field. He fights a battle against them at Wilton. And while he doesn't win, 
he does manage to achieve a strategic stalemate. He hasn't smashed the Vikings, but he has inflicted damage, enough so that the Vikings are willing to uh, be paid off. In effect, Alfred gives them a bunch of silver so that they'll go away. And this is actually a fairly standard thing to do if you're faced with a Viking force. The Vikings aren't fussy. They just want plunder, and if you're going to make it easy for them, fine. They could skip the fighting. In 845, Paris had paid a Viking army to go away, and they did. Later in English history, though, paying tribute to Vikings got a bad reputation, and we'll see this in a subsequent lecture. We're going to talk then about Danegeld. This is the money that you pay the Danes to go away. And this happens later in the 10th and 11th centuries, and it becomes a rather hated institution. And it becomes associated with appeasement. The idea is if you pay the Danes, they're always going to come back for more. Um, there's a wonderful line uh, about this uh, by the, the great British poet Rudyard Kipling. This is what he says. If once you have paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane, but... There's a very good case for Alfred paying the Danes off in 871. It buys him some much-needed time. And for five years after he comes to the throne, the great army is busy off in Northumbria and Mercia, and Alfred can watch and wait. Of course, eventually, the army does return, and this time they're led by a man named Guthrum. And Guthrum's army hammers away at Wessex, and finally succeeds in scattering Alfred's forces. And the king is desperate. He ends up having to take refuge with a very few followers in the remote Isle of Athelney. This is a marshy area in the western part of Wessex, and he hides out there for the whole winter of 877 to 78. Now, there's a wonderful story about Alfred's lonely time in the marshes. Supposedly, Alfred is alone and he comes across the hut of a swineherd, and he asks for shelter. And he stays there for a number of days. Essentially, he's getting himself back together. He's regrouping after the terrible experiences that he's had over the last couple of years. And he's praying for guidance. One day, the swineherd takes his flock out to pasture, and Alfred is left in the house with the swineherd's wife. She had put some loaves in to bake, and when she gets busy doing other domestic chores, she notices that the bread is burning. And she scolds Alfred, saying, look, you're right here. You can see the loaves are burning. And you won't even get up and turn them over. Yet you're quite happy to eat them when they come out of the oven. Alfred is very embarrassed by this tongue lashing. So he meekly gets up. He turns over the loaves and even helps the swineherd's wife to take them out of the oven uh, when they're ready. So the lesson is supposed to be that Alfred is humbled and he's learning his lesson about taking care of what's right in front of you. Now, it's a great story, but we have no record of it until over a century after Alfred's death. It's probably a folk legend. But I do think it captures something that's probably true about Alfred, and we've already mentioned this. Alfred learned lessons. He did learn from his experiences. But he didn't spend the whole winter on the Isle of Athelney praying. He slowly but surely reconstituted his army. And by the spring, he was prepared to come out of the marshes and fight. He sent out a message to all of Wessex asking the fighting men, those who had survived, 
to assemble at a place called Egbert's Stone. Now remember, King Egbert is Alfred's grandfather. He's the one who had started Wessex off on this positive trend. No one knows exactly where Egbert's Stone was, but it may have been somewhere on the border between Wiltshire and Somerset. So the message goes out, and the men came, and they assembled into an army big enough to take on Guthrum. Guthrum was encamped near Selwood in western Wiltshire at a place called Eddington, and Alfred marched to meet him, and he assembled the classic battle formation of the period, the shield wall. This is a long row of soldiers standing with their shields interlocked so that they literally form a wall. Now, once you had the wall in place, you just marched slowly forward until you met the enemy and his shield wall, and you pushed your shields against the other army's shields until somebody broke the line, and then there's hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and often one of the armies breaks and runs, and that's what happens at Eddington. It's a contest of brute strength and morale, and this time Alfred wins, and he pursues Guthrum's fleeing army, he besieges them in their encampment, and finally, Guthrum surrenders. And under the terms of the surrender, Guthrum agrees that he'll withdraw from Wessex and he'll accept Christian baptism. Alfred will be his godfather. Now, Alfred is probably not under any illusions about how sincere Guthrum is in becoming a Christian. This is a political act, but it does have great symbolic importance. It matters to people in the ninth century if their enemies are pagans. It's definitely seen as a triumph that Guthrum has been forced to accept baptism. And after the baptism, Guthrum withdraws from Wessex as promised. So the Battle of Eddington has been a triumph for Alfred. He has come from behind to win. Literally, he has come out of the marshes to win. But he's not about to assume that Eddington is the end of the Viking threat. He is going to make the most of the opportunity he has. He has breathing room. He's going to use it. And he's going to put the defenses of Wessex on a sounder footing so that the next time the Vikings come, he will be ready. So he decides to do three things. He's going to reorganize the army. He's going to build fortresses. And he'll create the first real English fleet of ships that will try to beat the enemy at their own game. So let's look at these efforts in turn. Alfred decides on a comprehensive reorganization of his forces. The army of Wessex is known as the Ferd. It's composed of levies of free men from all the shires or counties of Wessex. And we'll talk more about shires in the next lecture. For now, I'll just say these are the smaller units into which Wessex is divided. Hampshire, Wiltshire, etc., etc. So these are men capable of fighting, usually substantial landowners. The problem, of course, is they have lands to supervise, and it's a real hardship if they're away on campaign all the time. So Alfred divides the Ferd into two halves, each serving for six months at a time. That way, Wessex is always going to be defended, but there are still going to be enough people back on their farms to get the crops in. Alfred is thus putting the army on a sounder footing. He's thinking ahead about the good of the whole realm. He's thinking like a king. He also built a series of large fortresses known as burgs. And this is where we get our word burrow from, and it's why you get burrow or burg 
in a lot of place names. The reason for building these burgs was to concentrate his defenses at strategic points. A lot of these burgs are built in places that are already significant settlements, like London and Winchester. London had fallen to the Vikings earlier, but Alfred recaptures it in 886. Other burgs, he just builds at a, a good, a strategic point, and later they develop into substantial towns, simply due to the trade that's going to be attracted to a place where a lot of soldiers are concentrated. Now, archaeologists have done some very, very interesting work reconstructing these burgs, and they've discovered that the planning involved was extensive. The streets in the burg were laid out in a careful grid pattern. There's usually a high street running through the middle of the burg with side streets opening off of the high street. And then there's a wall street running around the inside of the fortified wall. This makes it easy to transport troops and materials within the burg. And you can see this street pattern in the burgs at Winchester, at Oxford, at Wallingford, and even London. In London, Alfred has to rebuild the city practically from scratch. There's just a shell left over from the Roman period, but Alfred builds it up again. It's a masterpiece of urban planning. Now, one of the reasons we know as much as we do about the Burgs, besides archaeology, is we have a document that spells out how they're supposed to be paid for. All of that planning, all of that building, it's obviously going to be expensive to carry it out, and later you're going to have to maintain it. And this document is known as the Burgle Hydage. Now, remember the tribal Hydage from Offa's reign in Mercia in the 8th century? That was a record of the tribute that was owed to King Offa from various places based on how many hides of land they had. So much money due per hide. The Burgle Hydage works in a similar way. It lists a total of 31 bergs, and each one is assigned a certain number of hides. And the system for deciding how many hides each berg requires is extremely systematic. The bigger the berg, obviously, the more resources it needs to maintain itself. And the burgle hideage spells out how many men are required to defend a given length of wall, and then uses this formula to assign the required number of hides to each burg, depending on its size. And this is quite a remarkable level of administrative sophistication for the 9th century. Modern scholars have checked the math, and it's pretty good. In the case of Winchester, the burgle hideage assigns 2,400 hides to cover 3,017 meters of wall. Modern archaeologists have measured the wall. It's 3,033 meters. So, in the 9th century, they were off by 16 meters out of 3,000. That's not bad. What it means is very accurate records were kept of the bergs as they were being built. So later on, they'd be able to calculate how much they needed to pay for them. This is a very elaborate, very impressive operation. So far then, Alfred has reorganized the army, the Ferd, and he's begun a network of defenses that will ultimately protect all of Wessex and spread into Mercia as well. The third effort I want to talk about more briefly is Alfred's decision to build a fleet. This is something that Anglo-Saxon monarchs hadn't really undertaken systematically before. We saw that the original Anglo-Saxon settlers were seafaring peoples, but as soon as they became rooted in English soil, they pretty much forgot all about the sea. The English are not especially great sailors. 
Certainly, they were, there were trading vessels, but England isn't really known for shipbuilding. Now, Alfred drew a conclusion that might have seemed obvious to anyone. If you've got enemies that are coming by ship to raid you, why not build your own fleet, intercept them at sea, and stop them from even getting on shore? So Alfred designs a new style of ship. Now, this aspect of Alfred's efforts is probably the least successful. The ships he designed weren't, in fact, all that effective. They weren't really very well suited to coastal fighting. But still, his fleets do score some important victories, and they set a precedent for the future. Later kings of England are going to do a lot more with ships than Alfred had been able to do. Thus, Alfred did a lot to improve England's defenses on a structural level, but there's progress on the political front as well. One of the most important developments of the years after the Battle of Eddington is Alfred's success in dominating Mercia. Mercia had become essentially a Danish client kingdom in recent years. We talked in the last lecture about dividing up Mercia, and some of it is settled by Danes. But after the Battle of Eddington, there is scope to somewhat restore Mercian independence. But Alfred doesn't do that. He doesn't put a king back on the throne of Mercia. He instead takes one of the Mercian nobles, an Ealderman, that's a royal official, a guy named Athelred, and he marries this guy, Athelred, to his daughter, Athelfleda. And the idea clearly is that Mercia is going to be ruled as an outpost of Wessex. Now, Athelfleda is a very interesting figure. She is maybe the most talented politician among Alfred's children, and she certainly made a great success of her career in Mercia. The Mercians loved her. She was called Lady of the Mercians, and she seems really to have eclipsed her husband, Athelred. Nobody thought a lot about Athelred. Um, he died uh, halfway into her rule in Mercia, and she continued uh, in his absence for several years uh, to do quite well ruling Mercia on her own. And this meant that Alfred didn't have to worry about Mercia. Now, so far, we've talked about Alfred's successes as a military leader and as a politician, but his reign is very well known for other accomplishments as well. He did a lot for English culture. Alfred had a lifelong devotion to learning. There's a wonderful story from his biography that when he was a young man, his mother set up a contest among the children in the family to see who could memorize a book of English songs the fastest, and Alfred won. Well, whether that's the trigger or whether it's the trip to Rome or something else, one of Alfred's priorities as king is to foster learning in England. And Alfred is one of the most literate kings of his age. He has to struggle hard to achieve literacy, but he does. He's literate both in English and in Latin. Think of what it must have been like to try to memorize Latin declensions. You've got Vikings coming over the next ridge, but he's dedicated and he does it. And Alfred wants other people to have access to the riches of classical and Christian texts, the things that he saw in Rome as a child. He looked about him in England, and he was dismayed by what he saw. He saw the terrible state in which learning found itself. There's hardly a churchman left in England who can read Latin adequately, we're told, let alone any laymen who are able to do so. So Alfred decides that the only course open to them is to translate as much as they can from Latin into the vernacular. And thus, Alfred's great translation project begins. He commissions a bunch of people to translate works from Latin into English. But here's the really remarkable part. 
he does a lot of the work of translating himself. And in between being king, he also does a lot of translating. He personally translates Pope Gregory the Great's Treatise on Rulership. It's a work called Pastoral Care. He also translates On the Consolation of Philosophy, a very, very difficult philosophical treatise by Boethius from the 6th century. Now, Alfred thinks these two works, among many others, these two works are going to help the priests of England do their work of inspiring the people. Now, Pope Gregory's work on pastoral care, that's essentially a manual for how to lead people effectively. It's directed at bishops, but many of the lessons in it can be applied equally well to kings, and that's how they read the text in the 9th century. Boethius's work was written when the author had been unjustly imprisoned, and basically it's about what you do uh, when you are faced with great misfortune. How do you bear up? And both of these works were quite relevant to the sorts of situations that Alfred had faced personally. I think they were personally meaningful to him. Alfred's interested in other kinds of texts, too. Alfred's reign is when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle starts being compiled. I've mentioned it several times. This is a record of the English past. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the royal family of Wessex, the line of Curdic, in the 5th century. But it's only started in the 890s. That's when you start to get it being compiled year by year. Um, in the 890s, they sort of went back and uh, compiled all the other annals retrospectively. Now, there's some debate among historians about Alfred's role in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. We're not sure whether Alfred actually commissioned the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Did he actually uh, start it off officially? Or maybe it just grew out of the atmosphere that Alfred was encouraging, where uh, learning and history are respected. But either way, historians ever since have been enormously grateful for the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. There's a lot we would not know if we didn't have it. But the most important texts for Alfred's day-to-day -day rulership were probably the legal texts that he produced. Alfred decided that it was important to gather up all the old laws that had been written down in the past, choose the best ones, and make a new law code. Now, the legal philosophy in this period had traditionally been that the king found the law. He didn't make the law. He was just the one who declared officially what the traditional law of the people was. But when Alfred made his legal compilations, he did some picking and choosing and tweaking and this pushed things in the direction of the king being a lawgiver. And this idea of Alfred as a lawgiver was one of the most important things that people in England remembered about him. We're moving away from the society we began with when the Anglo-Saxons arrived in England. Then the law is something that the people administer themselves. We're moving towards the law being something that the state is in charge of. It's a slow process, but it's definitely underway from now on. So Alfred has a very busy reign. The last few years of his reign tested the defensive arrangements he made because the Vikings did come back. But the defenses of Wessex basically held, and Alfred left a strong legacy to his successors. Over the next few decades after Alfred died in 899, his son Edward the Elder and his grandson Athelstan slowly but surely reconquered the English kingdoms that had been lost to the Danes. Athelstan's royal charters even call him Emperor of Britain, and it was only a little bit of an exaggeration. So the House of Wessex had come a long way since Alfred's lonely time in the marshes of Athelney. 
The Vikings had done Wessex a favor by getting, getting rid of all their rivals, and Wessex had taken advantage of the opportunity to create the first ever united English kingdom. England had peace and prosperity unmatched since the days of Roman rule in Britain. In our next lecture, we'll look in detail at how Alfred's successors ruled their unified kingdom.